Good evening and welcome to episode 5 of Mali on Politics, a weekly podcast for emmanmali.com, in which we examine the topical issues of the day. By now you'll all have heard the Sunday Times correspondent Marie Colvin was killed in an assault on Homs in Syria. Marie was married twice to my co-author of the Provisional IRA, Patrick Bishop. I only met Marie once, so I can't really speak very much about her. I really didn't know her personally. Nevertheless, having heard her report from a basement in Homs and having gone to bed to waken up to learn she was dead, that came as a real shock. You may not know, but between 1992 and today, 882 journalists have been killed in troubled spots around the world. Between 2003 and 2008, in Iraq, 324 journalists were killed and 46 journalists were killed last year. We forget these statistics. We forget that colleagues of ours actually have been killed, wiped out, obliterated in these circumstances. On the back of the killing of Marie Colvin and Remy Oslik, I decided that we should discuss this whole issue of covering wars, of our putting ourselves in perilous, parlous situations, questioning the validity of doing so, and do we get the Christ we deserve if, in fact, we as journalists, photographers and cameramen put ourselves in such dangerous situations? To discuss this whole subject, I have with me this afternoon or this evening, Brian Rowan, former BBC Northern Ireland security correspondent, and Robin Walsh, former head of BBC News Northern Ireland, editor of the BBC News, 9 o'clock national news that is, and he indeed is a man who dispatched many, many a war correspondent into what could be called the theatre of operation around the world. Brian Rowan, you in a sense had your own war on your own doorstep here having covered the troubles in Northern Ireland for so many years. What was your reaction when you heard that Marie Colvin had been killed? Uh, you read out a set of statistics which are, are shocking. Uh, so uh, I think shock is, is the first reaction. Uh, Marie Colvin was a, a war correspondent, uh, someone who was prepared to put herself in harm's way. Uh, we're in a situation at the moment where there is a very bright light shining on journalism for all of its bad practice, for all of its wrongdoing, for its uh, prying and, and, and playing with uh, people's private lives. Uh, Marie Colvin was a, a different type of journalist, uh, someone who uh, covered many international conflicts, someone who uh, caught in a, in a rocket attack in, in what she thought was probably the safest place she could be because there is no such thing as a safe place in those uh, war situations. But we're journalists, and uh, all journalists want to be with the biggest news, want their name attached to the biggest headline, want to be on page one of the newspaper rather than page 21. So it's part of our instinct to go looking for the, for the big news, for the big stories, for those big, for those big moments. But I think um, you know, we should trumpet people like Marie Colvin for the service they do for others for being prepared to put herself in such a, a dangerous place, to report on such dangerous events. And she's at the side of the journalistic coin that I think all of us around this table would most identify with. And as I say, at a time when there is that bright, bright light on the, all of the bad practices of journalism, 
here's someone who uh, we should be proud of. Robin Walsh. I think that Brian was absolutely spot on in referring initially to the dark side of journalism and what's going right through the Levinson Inquiry and all of those things that are emerging uh, that we as journalists, having covered the Northern Ireland situation and all its complexity, uh, which we as journalists find abhorrent. And then when you, you read of Miss Colvin's uh, death, you have to say that is the right side of journalism. Let me quote her, Eamon, because actually I never knew the woman, sadly. But I tell you what, I read about her and I admired her. She says, you can't get information without going to places where people are being shot at and others are shooting you. Now, this is the real point. The real difficulty is having enough faith in humanity to believe that enough people, be they government, military, or the man on the street, will care when your report reaches the printed page, the websites, or the screens. We do have that faith because we believe we do make a difference. And these people do believe they make a difference. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. There's no compunction for them to be there other than driven sort of mission to explain, if you like, uh, to expose these horrors that make people actually think differently about aspects of the world. Stop. Yeah. Stop. Should journalists be the equivalent of adventurers? Well, who's saying they're the equivalent of being adventurers? I mean, they're, they're not forced to go there. I mean, I can speak from a BBC experience, Eamon. People, people are volunteers. They're not forced to go. They're not forced to go. But they have got this, this mission to, to shine lights, use the cliché, you know, and, and that, I mean, a hugely difficult uh, thing to send people off to war who are civilians, you know. Uh, what I would say about the BBC, and I'm very proud of the BBC for this, they, 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 they blazed a trail in, in, in having courses, uh, laugh at it as people did at the time, having serious courses by serious people, run by serious people, telling journalists and camera crews, and let's not forget the camera crews who really are at the front line, uh, on how to try to be as safe as possible in places where safety is the last thing, actually, uh, that, that happens. You know, I remember this very well, Robin, when... Uh, it appears an edict came down the line in the BBC about journalists in very delicate situations here in Northern Ireland having to wear uh, toughened uh, jackets, mm. etc. Uh, mm. Brian, you remember this well. I'm sure you mm. wore them drum cree and all the rest. Mm. And he said, this is a very facile response, but I said, what, what bloody whips the BBC? But people get killed in these situations. There was a logic to what was being actually uh, promoted at that point in time. Well, you described an adventure a, a moment ago, or described, uh, and, and I know you did it as devil's advocate and you were being controversial, that term, adventurer. Um, I know, and, and you and I have been in these places. I was one of them. I was one of them, yes. Uh, but, but it's not an adventure. Um, it's, it's a scary journey. Um, it's a walk along the thinnest of lines on occasions, a thin moral line where sometimes you can't see the line at all. I can remember being with Kate Eddy in South Armagh, and you will remember part of the story and Robin will remember the other part of it. We're in South Armagh where the IRA had killed three of its own people. 
we came across two of the bodies. Uh, and we're standing there and we're reporting and we're filming. And those situations, I think, almost dehumanize you. Because what would you do in a normal circumstance if you came across a body? You would call someone, you would try to get help, you would maybe sit beside someone, you would maybe say a prayer. But in those moments of reporting, you don't and you can't do any of those things because you've got to try to lock yourself out of that situation. So the, the day after discovering those bodies, you and I are taken away by the IRA. I remember this so vividly. Uh, I'm sure you would. Our eyes taped. This one? Yeah. Uh, our phones taken off us. Uh, given thick black glasses, not sunglasses, but glasses that you can't see out of. Taken to a house where we're both searched. You'll remember this, Simon. Robbie should remember this. Not alone that, we couldn't see. Our, our eyes were completely blanked out. We were virtually blindfolded. And we were led down what I remember to be steps with somebody holding my two hands, mm. it, it, groping aimlessly, yeah. hopelessly, with no control whatsoever. Well, 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 Robin will remember part of this story because Robin was in the BBC in Belfast at that time. But anyway, we're j j just to finish the story, we're taken to a house, we're led upstairs. Uh, the glasses and the tape are removed and there are two men before us in balaclavas. And on a sheet of toilet paper, a long sheet of toilet paper, they have the IRA statement and the explanation behind the executions, as they described them, of the three men the night before, which you and I wrote down. Uh, and then uh, the tape was applied to our eyes again. The glasses were put back on. Um, we were taken out by those two young men and dropped off where we, were, where we were picked up. And I can remember going back to the BBC. Robin was controller at that time. Keith Baker was head of news. Tom Kelly, who went on to be Tony Blair's spokesman, was the news editor. And, and I, I explained what had happened, not only about finding the bodies the night before, and, and of course they would have known about that, but then this journey with the IRA uh, into this uh, unknown uh, situation a situation which we had no control over. And there was a bit of an earthquake in the BBC at that time, overall that had happened. And I can remember the next day Tom Kelly asked me, uh, would I like some counselling? And I remember being insulted at the time. Yes. Being insulted at the time because I thought to use your word a few moments ago, is this guy thinking I'm some sort of wimp? Mm -hmm. Is he beginning to think I'm not capable of doing um, this job, that I'm in some way fragile or, or vulnerable. And I think, and Robin mentioned cameramen, camera women, people who covered Bloody Friday in the 70s when body parts were being shoveled into bags. So I, I, don't, want to, I don't want to come across as poor me in 1992 in this situation. But I think the penny was beginning to drop in terms of what we asked of people when we sent them out into those situations. Oh, absolutely. To report for others. Yeah. To report for others um, who had the comfort, Eamon and Robin, of being able to sit in their armchairs at home, listen to the news, watch the news, read the news. But I think the penny was beginning to drop in terms of what people were being asked to do. Oh, you better believe it. I mean, let me go back to, to uh, Bloody Sunday. I was working in... Uh, in UTV at the time, very closely with ITN. Now, I know names in the mess. ITN, we actually had a feeling, as, as most journalists did have, that, that, that something big was going to happen on Bloody Sunday. Here was this civil rights march. 
Here was the army having an opportunity to get into a hitherto no-go area. ITN sent two reporters, two camera crews. The two cameramen, the two reporters go in and they find themselves in the middle of Bloody Sunday. One cameraman, freelance. Slightly an unknown quantity to ITN, finds himself where all the action is. But he freezes. He doesn't shoot a thing. ITN's best cameraman found himself where there was little action. And therefore ITN came through a bloody Sunday without showing any blood. BBC had a cameraman, Cyril Cave. Mm. A legend. A legend. A, a legend and, and, and essentially him, a legend because of Bloody Sunday. And he just did the business. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I remember a bit of humour uh, doing a farewell speech to Cyril Cave. And you may well remember those images of the parish priest waving the bloodstained hanky. Yeah. And I described him as the only Protestant in ecclesiastical history who was responsible for making a priest a bishop. And, and, and <laughs> those, like images, those images are there. Yeah. And, and, and Brian is so right. Who was to blame that freelance cameraman? That unknown quantity. But surprising that there was an unknown quantity for freezing. Mm. Because I, for one, wouldn't. Hey, we're disappointed. We're jumping up and down. But at the end of the day, you've got to realise that uh, this ain't a picnic. Mm. And that's not to make a great thing about journalism. This was our job. We went there. Of course. You know. And Peter, hey, Peter, hey, Peter, hey, Peter hey. Cooper was another example oh. following Michael Stone down through the graveyard. But hold, on, hold on now, Robin. You were my boss for a short period of time, a very short period of time. But boy, you were a man with a nose and you expected very high standards. I remember the great David Capper, one of the most distinguished reporters of our time, of our era, uh, being sent out. Uh, I, I wasn't in the BBC at the time. I was working for the rival organisation, Downtown Radio. But there was a terrible murder in North Belfast, pitchfork murder. Remember? Um, there was a, a man and his wife, I think the family were younger, and they were impaled to the ground with a spear out of a grape or something. And uh, anyhow, there was a lady gave an interview to me as a, as a reporter then, and David Kepper, you sent him back out to get that interview. Like, you went after your quarry in those days. As but maybe we, thought, maybe we thought that interview was important for whatever reason. Uh, and yes, I was... I was, you described me as hard, I was a hard newsman, I don't dispute that and I, and, and I have no problem with that. But I think that my hardness, Eamon, was sometimes exaggerated. And where you might have seen my sensitivities were on the cutting room floor. Mm. Camera crews had, I mean, this is why I so admired camera crews. They went out, they had to shoot everything. They weren't editing programmes. They weren't editing programmes. They were looking down the lens. They were looking down the lens. And they shot the bodies, they, the, 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 the body bags as well. It was up to the editor back at base to indicate his sensitivity and to actually put on air what he felt or she felt 
was relevant to that story and the whole area of, of the showing of violence in television. I mean, I remember being in television news and, and my boss saying to me, your one job is to go down to the videotape area and you will decide what the great British public will see. What the story was, it was the Heysel Stadium and, 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 and the dreadful loss of life uh, at, 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 at that football match. And I saw every picture coming in and it was my decision what would, what would be transmitted. And I used, I used, I think, I hope, uh, decency and a feel. And, and I had no wish to show the British public a young boy sitting on his father's chest, or was it his uncle's chest, who knows, trying to beat life into that man. But this is, but I understand so there is certain sensitivity. But yes, of course. But the difference here is it's actually dispatching people. And, and what, is, what, what goes through somebody's head like yours as you're dispatching somebody like Kate Haley, like Martin Bell, into that theatre of operation, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in Asia, whether it's in Northern Ireland, what goes through your head? Because aren't, you must be aware that potentially you're putting that person or that person is potentially going to be in very grave danger. From a BBC perspective, how did you approach that? Well, that was, the, that was the nature of the business. I mean, that was the nature of the business we were in. And when you talk about Martin Bell and, and when you talk about Kate Eddy and people like that, you're talking about seasoned campaigners. Okay, Martin's been injured. Uh, John Simpson's been blown off his feet. But these people know as best as you can, mm. from a journalistic point of view, as best as you can, what risks you can and cannot take. And I think that you have to satisfy yourself that the people going into particular conflicts are the best people for that job, not only the correspondent, but the camera crews. And it's, it's on this, on, in this Murray Colvin thing, the thing that uh, perplexes me her death was a dreadful tragedy. But the thing that also perplexes me was that she was a target. It would seem that, that the journalistic fraternity out there were singled out, and that is, that is hugely worrying. And we've had this down the years, haven't we? For sending out a message that others wanted to shut oh, down, absolutely, obviously. Uh, absolutely you know, right. Absolutely you can hold right. on. Let me say, I, I, I don't have much experience of international coverage uh, of reporting, but I, I did spend uh, almost three, we three weeks in, in Syria uh, at the time that... Uh, Brian Keenan mm. uh, was was held hostage in that part of the world, mm -hmm. and I I haven't ever been anywhere where I, where I, in any country where I felt uh, such a sense of oppression. I had a handler from the moment that I arrived in that country until the moment that I left. A guy called Tommy Tony Tumo, and he literally stood on me from the moment of my arrival there, Robert, yeah, until yeah. the moment of my departure. What an oppressive environment. Now, could, could you imagine the circumstances under which this lady, Marie Colvin, uh, was actually working? Mm -hmm. And then, if this is factual, that the base from which she was operating, mm -hmm. the media base, was willfully targeted, <coughs> isn't it an extraordinary development? Those who have things to hide will make one of their main targets the media. Uh, we had this in South Africa, marvellous documentary series on television recently, tracing over three or four parts 
the history of apartheid in South Africa, riveting stuff. The last episode uh, culminated, obviously, on the, re the release of Nelson Mandela and the birth of democracy there. But before that, the nationalist regime absolutely targeted the media. Thou shalt not report from here, in that it might go away. I can remember a former Secretary of State in Northern Ireland suggesting to uh, us editors that if we stopped reporting the troubles here, <laughs> they might actually go away. Mm. Now, I don't think that was well thought through by that particular individual. Brian? What I think about when I think about people like uh, Marie Colvin is uh, we don't have that experience of reporting international conflict. But we found it difficult enough to report a conflict and a war that was on our own doorstep. Uh, we kind of, I think, knew what to look out for here. And I can only imagine what it would be like into a, a non-known, strange situation. Uh, the additional fear attached to, to, to all of that. And one of the other things that uh, um, I've noticed in the last couple of days is the family of Paul Conroy, the Sunday Times photographer, you, you, you know, wanting him back home, wanting him out of Syria. Mm -hmm. and, and that's another thing we forget about when, when, when we're reporting conflict, what we actually put our families, what we actually put our families through. I mean, I can remember some situations here where I have felt in some danger. Um, some statements were uh, issued by loyalist organizations. I remember over long periods of time checking under my wife's car uh, in the mornings before she went to work and before the kids got dropped off to school. And if the kids found me checking onto the car, saying to them that I was looking for the cat, Sylvester, when in actual fact what I was doing was looking for the bomb. Not that I ever expected to find one there, but I could never have forgiven myself if someone set out to target me and, and my family were, 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 were hurt or worse. So... Um, what the editors think when they send us out to do particular jobs. I think they hope the best for us. Uh, I think they uh, put their trust in us to not do anything um, foolish, uh, not to take unnecessary risks, to use our gut as best we could to, to guide ourselves through, through certain situations. But, uh, and, and, and I mean, I know from a BBC perspective, no one was ordered out the door to do anything. <coughs> you know, <clears throat> if I'd have said to Robin, or, or said to a news editor, I don't want to do that. You know, I think that's too dangerous. Those people weren't going to say to me, uh, well, you're still going. Hmm. That's not the way it happened. I take, I, I take that, uh, uh, Brian, but we had a case, did we not? In, back in 2008, about a young woman who went to Somalia on behalf of the BBC. And she was shot, shot dead. Now, it, it so happened that, that the coroner at the inquest praised the BBC mm. for the precautions they, they, they took in sending people into danger areas. Mm. But this woman's sister, mm actually said that she felt her sister had been under 
her own pressures mm. because she was under contract. Mm. She was not a staff member. She felt that if she didn't go, mm. she might say, here, here, what about my future? Mm. Now, that's something that the BBC has looked on and would dismiss and what have you. Mm. But that is the pressure on the individual, mm. not on the organisation. And I think there's a huge pressure too with, with 24-hour news as well. Absolutely. Robin, you know, which has created a, a new pressure within reporting. Not only are you are you are you there to report, but you're there to try and get it first because news is not something that's delivered second. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, I, I appreciate yeah. that, Brian, but if you ref reflect on the killing of Veronica Guerin, mm -hmm. now uh, could I just ask you to address that uh, death? Uh, did Veronica Guerin potentially uh, expose herself to that type of threat unnecessarily? Um, I'll address it this way. Um, I think there is something in all of us, and I mentioned this in my first answer, which is about doing our job to the best of our ability, which is going about and going after news wherever it is, and there are occasions, uh, I have no doubt, when Veronica put herself in great danger. And I have no doubt that there have been occasions when I have put myself mm -hmm. in great danger. Uh, and and we, we need people, and you and I have discussed this recently, uh, we need some people to come along to us and say, maybe it's time to step back. Maybe it's time to let someone else step in. Uh, but then there's a part of you that says, I'm being intimidated out of my job. I'm being intimidated away from the news. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm delivering something which is not the best I can deliver. I think the biggest danger to journalists in Northern Ireland will come if we ever get to the point where we shovel up the dirty war onto the surface, onto the surface of, um, uh, of our, our reporting on news, on radio, and in our newspapers. Because there are people out there who fear their involvement in war will be exposed and who will try to shut that down at all costs. And I couldn't agree with you more. It's about exposure. Who's the one journalist who actually lost his life covering the Northern Ireland situation. Martin O'Hagan. Martin O'Hagan of Sunday World. What was his business? Exposing. His, his business was exposition. <coughs> and that's what Veronica Gurland's uh, uh, business mm. was. And when you say, did, um, did she expose herself to danger? She was in the business of exposing others. And I think that's a very, very rough end of the market. You can talk about your wars, but in a little community like Northern mm. Ireland, where you're exposing... Or Dublin or Dublin, mm. exposing the rackets. Mm -hmm. The love of money is the root of all evil. Mm. You're exposing the rackets, and you're actually exposing murderers. Self-preservation, that's difficult. That's more difficult than covering riots, the aftermath of bombs. Mm. So the experience of Marie Colvin, in your way of thinking, should serve or should it serve as a spur to other journalists uh, to undertake corresponding risk and engage in corresponding risk, risk uh, 
wherever the trouble is. What would the Syrian dictatorship want after the death of Marie Colvin? They would want every journalist to pack up their tent, disappear, go away, uh, leave that Syrian situation um, uh, to uh, develop uh, and evolve as a Syrian dictatorship would want it. So should journalists now leave Syria? No, they shouldn't. Should they go back in there, try to expose more, uh, excavate more, examine more, explain more to a watching audience? Yes, they, yes, they should. Now, I'm not saying go in there and, 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 and take uh, any old risk or, or every old risk. What I'm saying is go in there, protect yourself as best you can, do your job, provide the news, allow people, and shame maybe, shame maybe, an international community not to look the other way, but, but to look at what they should be looking at. One thing that the jury's out as far as I'm concerned, and we haven't touched on it yet, and that's when you get a full-blown war, mm. if you look at Iraq and look at Afghanistan, this practice, which has been going on now for a number of years, called embedding. Yes. Right. Putting people on the front line with troops. With troops. And you sign an agreement, mm. you know. And... Where do you stand in that, Rob? Well, you see, I, d I don't know, because, uh, because thank goodness I've never been embedded. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I will talk to you about my only experience, um, not at the sharp end of embedding, and that was the Falklands War. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the Falklands War, Hanrahan and, and all sorts of people went down there. Young Nick Witchell went down, young at the time. And there, was, there was no alternative, you know, travelling that far down and, and, and the nature of that war of being embedded, mm. if you like, although that phrase was, was, was not there. And what was quite interesting was that all the film uh, was, was shipped back to London uh, or by satellite from uh, Ascension Island. And on many occasions, I sat in London with an MOD censor. All right? He saw every image. I saw every image. Other editors saw images. And we would remonstrate. I remember, in the nicest possible way. I doubt that with you, Rob. No, 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 no. In the nicest possible way. Bluff Cove, or wherever, the soldiers coming off in stretchers, legless people, people who'd suffered serious injury in war, and the censor says, I don't think so, I don't think so. And the counter-argument to that was, come on, we have to show elements of the reality of war. Mm. And, and actually, believe it or not, most we won, you know. Uh, and I find that quite... Uh, embedding has now become an absolute fact of life in Iraq and in Afghanistan. Part, now, parcel now, of coverage, isn't it, Jim? Well, it, very much so. Is. Now, where do I stand? How do you now, feel viscerally, though, on that issue? Well, it, 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 makes, it, it makes it more accessible for the journalist. It makes it arguably, and I'm, well, maybe not arguably, it makes it safer but it throws up ethical questions. Mm. I mean, ethical questions. Now, I don't know because I've never been embedded, but, but reading people who have been embedded, 
some say yes, some say no. Well, let, let's take you people know. from here. Bill Neely, for example. Yeah. Uh, Carl Dinan of Channel 4. I've watched these guys. I know these guys. You knew Bill Neely and, uh, when, when he worked here. Uh, and I watched these guys with the, with the, full, the full gear on, mm-hmm. uh, bulletproof vest, the heap. What's your reaction when you see that, Brian? You know, how do you respond to that? Well, I suppose a bit like Robin, I would say there's no easy answer to the question about embedding. But if you're covering a war, can you can you cover it without being on the front line? What are you missing if you're not on the front line? I watched uh, Alex Crawford's report on Sky News when she travelled with the the rebels into Tripoli, um, and I watched other news channels scampering around for bits and pieces, many miles away from from that action. What news did I want to watch? I wanted to watch Alex Crawford going into Tripoli. What did I think? Thank God it's Alex and not me that's there. That's probably what I thought, because of course there's a huge danger involved. And we have worked in Belfast here with some of the people who are at the coalfaces of those conflicts, who cut their teeth here. Jeremy Bowen, I can remember him working as a regional journalist in the... uh, in the BBC's Belfast newsroom. Now the BBC's Middle East editor, I think it is, Robin, isn't that, isn't that correct? Mm-hmm. You, you know, you mentioned Bill Neely, Johnny Irvine, mm-hmm. the beat Fergal Keane, uh, you, you, you know, where, where, they've been, where they've been to places um, uh, of great danger. Uh, and, and, and taking it back to a local experience and, and some of the things that we've had to cover here, you do not come out of this untouched or unscarred. Your memory becomes a swamp that pulls you back into past events. Some killings that we remember over other killings. Uh, interviews that we've done. The bits, the recall of the bits that we got wrong. And I think this is another important point to make. Whether you're covering a conflict in our situation here in Northern Ireland or you're covering an international war, there is no such thing as a perfect reporting record no matter how good your sources are. Uh, In the fog of war, uh, through all of those blurred lines, there is ample room for error. So uh, how do you report this best? I suppose by being closest to it. So is embedding a necessary danger? I would probably come down on the side that says, yes, it is. Although, thank God, I've never had to be there. Oh, I couldn't agree more. But uh, what's what's quite what's quite interesting is uh, being almost the opposite of embedding was what we went through in Northern Ireland, because it occurred to me as you look back over what were they 30, 40 years mm-hmm. of turmoil and all <clears> of that, we were unique in that we were reporting the conflict to the very people involved in the conflict. Mm-hmm. Now. That makes life pretty difficult. Oh, it does. Pretty difficult. It does. Because we were both we were both behind the police lines, and with the fighters, the other the other guys. Well, no, also, but also because we lived here and yeah. had families here, and we're bringing up families. I mean, let me tell you, Evan, and I don't mind saying this publicly. I have two daughters. Had anything happened to my wife or my two daughters through acts of terrorism, I doubt whether I could have continued to do my job. Because in doing my job, I had to have some sort of an open mind. I impartiality is very difficult to mm, define yes, and all yes, of that. Yes. But, you know, you had to have an objectivity. 
Mm. I had either the loyalist bomb or a, or a Republican bomb blown up my family. Whether that quotes impartiality mm. or that objectivity, I ask you. I think there is a very unique challenge when you live in a divided society and when you report to that divided society. Because unlike the international war correspondent, quite often sent to, to places where they have no emotional attachment. Every night we went home. We covered what we covered, which was sometimes in the next street to us, sometimes around the corner from us. In the next town or the next village, it was a stone's throw away from us. I think the other huge danger that came our direction was when we did that reporting, we were quite often labelled. Depending on what you said, one night you could be the greatest thing since sliced bread, and what you said the following night, you could be the, the worst person on two feet. And we had all sorts of people labelling us for all sorts of reasons. Um, source relationships that were built over years, many times they crumbled because it wasn't our job to play on any one side. It was our job both to report the conflict and to report the evolving peace process. Robin's absolutely right. We can't live in this bubble that detaches us from the reality of what's happening on the street. We're all stitched into the fabric of this place. We're part of it. It's part of our lives. I think the other huge pressure that that delivered to us was that tug of war between your professional duty and your citizenship. And, and I'm talking about as we emerged out of conflict and towards peace, that many people expected us to do what was right for the peace process rather than what was right in terms of our job, in terms of delivering uh, the facts and warts and all to, to the people who were watching and listening. Let me ask you though, Robin, do people have to know as much as you, as an editor, presume they have to know, to the point where some of your employees as journalists expose themselves to grave danger. That's very difficult, Damon. Uh, I have to say there are bits of information that I remember which I didn't give authorization to broadcast some quite good stories. And it was put to me that in transmitting those stories, now we're not talking about very many, we're talking about two or three, Eamon, and maybe you've had the same experience, where this is a good story, it's got a degree, more than a degree of public interest in it, but it will put somebody's life in jeopardy. Not not a political initiative in jeopardy, because who knows about mm. that. But if it is actually proven to you, to the extent that it, it would seem probable, possible, probable, that somebody's life could be in real danger, mm. I don't think there's a great argument. And the argument would go, I am not going to risk that person's life. Absolutely. And, and I, can give, I won't give you two or three examples although they are long in the past. But uh, no, thank you very much. But let me ask you, and this is a very a, a sensitive uh, question to put uh, to you guys, particularly you uh, who exercised a lot of editorial control. 
Do we allow eagles to dictate and potentially expose our journalists to great danger? But Eamon, we all have. We all have an eagle. And if I'm out with you in the field, I'm competing against you. You want to be first and I want to be first. That's the nature of the journalistic beast. No one is forcing us to compete. It is our natural instinct in the world in which we work that we will compete with each other. Uh, so, yes, um, we've all been in dangerous situations. We're very lucky. Uh, and we're also, we've also been very privileged that in, in the work that we have had to do here, we have been able to talk to all sides, to loyalist, Republican, security force, political. And this is one thing that I say to visiting journalists when they come here, because there are people through here every week now wanting to learn from our experience, whether they be Iraqi parliamentarians, Israeli or Palestinian journalists. They want to know how we got from A to B. And I tell them, you report a conflict not by taking sides, but by talking to all sides. And, and I think that's the big lesson that we can deliver from here. Okay. You see, what I found quite interesting, Eamon, was that uh, at, the, at the start of the Troubles, and for a period into them, when vacancies arose in the Belfast newsroom, in the BBC, young, bright journalists emerging from the BBC's journalist training scheme would have vied for jobs in Northern Ireland. Mm. And I'm talking about Nick Whitchell and I'm talking Paxman. about talking about Jeremy Paxman, uh, the, the late Brian Hanrahan, God, God rest him. And, and they saw in Northern Ireland, which is qu quite an obvious thing to think, this is an area, high news profile, mm -hmm. gets on the network news, mm -hmm. I could become noticed here. That is not to say they have got huge egos which drove them to irresponsibility in covering the stories they covered here, it actually showed a serious and decent and proper ambition. Right, OK, I, mm. I can live with that. Let me ask you something. Did you ever have a sleepless night, though, over, over a particular yeah. editorial uh, yeah. judgment which yeah. imperiled one of your staff? Well, no, I, I, I had sleepless nights over those stories I've already mentioned that were, were, were not transmitted, not many a number. Uh, I think we had uh, we had many sleepless nights because I wouldn't wish to glamorize it, but there are some decisions which do imperil people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I've, I, I've been to the UDA saying to the UDA, if you carry out your threat to David Dunseith and God rest his soul, and not to allow him into your area, it won't be David Dunseith you'll be banning, actually. It will be all of us at UTV. And I have said to the Republican movement in West Belfast, when they attempted to make West Belfast a no-go area to Martin Bell and Brian Walker on the back of certain reportage, decent reportage, the message goes back to the Republican movement. Hey, listen, you will not be banning Bell and you'll not be banning Walker. You'll be banning a lot of us, mm. you know. And, and yes, it's all been very difficult, but can I say this? We in journalism did, in my view, a decent, responsible job 
But let's not be too heroic about it. The mm. real people who suffered here actually were the people on whom and of whom and about whom we were reporting. I'm coming to you this. Know. I'm yeah. coming to this yeah. because I just because want I to... would hate to glamorize what oh, we well, what we do. Let, let, let me come in here, Brian. Just to add to what Robin was saying there, and it's just I want to say it while it's in my head, Eamon. The day after the IRA took you and I away, with our eyes taped up and those glasses on, we went the next day to see someone from the Republican organisation. And we told them, mm -hmm. if that's the way they were going to do their business, it was over. Then do it with someone else. That's right. Okay. Cool. So, uh, yes, there are risks, but within that reporting responsibility that we had, we also had to set our own ground rules. Yeah. Rules. We never, we never, at any stage, wanted to be at an IRA or a UDA planning meeting. We didn't want to know what they were planning the next day or the day after that. And most of our contacts with those organisations were after the event. Except the, the reason why, Robin, I was asking you there from a personal perspective, had you any sleepless nights arising out of any decision that you took regarding your reporter journalist, putting that journalist reporter into the field? Uh, I just wanted to share this with you. Uh, there, was a, there was a prison governor, a uh, reasonably young man called Billy McConnell, and uh, he was shot dead by the IRA, killed very close to Stormont at the back of Campbell College. And three weeks previous to that, he was accessed to me to do an interview. And I accessed him to ITN and they did an interview. And uh, within three weeks, he was dead. And I often wondered uh, as a human being, if I hadn't, if I hadn't put myself in that position, or if I hadn't ended up in that position where that man became public, would he be alive today? Oh, I, I, I take that dilemma. I mean, I can, I can quote you a similar one where uh, the BBC uh, many years ago did a, did a piece on uh, uh, a Fermanagh schoolteacher, I think, uh, and his allegation was that uh, he had been tortured by the RUC. Now, that programme went to air. Shortly after it went to air, the IRA shot dead a policeman in the same county of Fermanagh. And in their statement of admission or responsibility, they said... We have executed this policeman because of the BBC programme which exposed torture on part of the BBC, or on part of uh, the RUC. That was not a very helpful statement, and that made us think to what extent were we responsible for that uh, uh, constable's murder. But I think, Eamon, and it's exceptionally difficult, if you go up that road, you don't report anything of mm. any real substance. So are you saying... No, but what I am saying is that there have been occasions when it was proven to us that there was a real chance of something sinister happening as a result of this exposure. We would have erred on the side of decency and caution. The examples that you give and the examples I give are less clear-cut. And if you go up the road of saying we are not going to report this and we're not going to report that, I think actually that you're on the road of uh, opening up a grocer's shop. Barney? 
Um, I think the examples that, that you raise, Eamon, are, are very good examples. None of us has a crystal ball. We can only do our best. We can only make the best professional judgments we can make. We can only take the best advice that is available to us. And I certainly know in my reporting time at the BBC, I would have spoken to Robin Walsh, I would have spoken to senior colleagues, and I would have taken their advice. None of us um, would, would willy-nilly take a run into a dark alley where we were either endangering ourselves or putting someone else in danger. Brian Rowan, Robin Walsh, in conclusion, I just want to, on your behalf and everybody's behalf, salute the bravery of those 46 journalists killed in 2011 and remember Marie Colvin and her colleague killed in Syria. From MMLE.com, good evening. <laughs>